imagine that. Oh my God, imagine if I did my whole podcast and forgot to hit record. (laughs) I would just jump out the window. That's what I would do. All right, here we go. This is a Scream Queen production. Jen Carpenter. Today's episode is one that I'm very excited to present to you because it solves a mystery I have been curious about for forever. When you live your whole life in the same general area, you come to learn the history of your hometown, both the true and the untrue. One of the urban legends I grew up hearing was that there are bullet holes in the ceiling of the tallest building in Lansing a result of a bank robbery in the 1930s that was allegedly perpetrated by either Al Capone or the Purple Gang, or both. I've heard it both ways. Once I learned how to internet sleuth, and I've gotten pretty good at that, I looked and I looked and I looked for this story and I found nothing. I eventually gave up assuming it was just a silly rumor, but a strange turn of recentish events brought me the scandal I've been looking for. So easily my favorite episode of this season, maybe ever, was the Fruit War episode. I love finding weird old history that nobody knows about, which is what this episode's going to be also for the most part. Um, But this episode is one that I was finally able to pin down because of the Fruit War episode. I heard from so many people after that one who were either connected to people involved, had heard bits and pieces from Great Uncle Pete, or were just fascinated by everything and wanted to know more. One of the people that reached out to me was a man by the name of Bruce Philip Miller, who is the author of a book called Once Upon a Time in Lansing, which covers local history spanning many years, including the time of the Fruit War. While we were talking about his book, Bruce made a comment to the effect of, it's not really true crime, uh, but it does talk about the shooting at the Michigan National Bank building back in the 30s. And I was like, hold up. Excuse me, sir. Excuse me, pause. Is this the story that I have been searching for my whole life? I had my like, hello, is it me you're looking for? moment. And that's the only time I'm going to sing this episode. I haven't sang for you guys in a long time, so I had to do it. So I said to him, you know, oh my gosh, I've been looking for information on that bank robbery for forever. And he said, well, it wasn't a robbery. That's probably why you couldn't find it. And that, friends, is the information that broke this whole thing wide open. So we all have Bruce to thank for today's episode. Before we dive into this one, though, I do need to thank today's sponsor. 
Care of is a subscription service that ships high-quality, personalized vitamins and supplements right to your door each month. This month, they're launching their Gut Musts line with products aimed at managing bloating, gas, indigestion, and weight. Gut health is foundational to our overall health and influences all aspects of our lives, including sleep, weight, immunity, and mood. Care of makes it super easy to figure out what your body needs. All you have to do is take a short, in-depth quiz about your lifestyle and health goals, and they will provide you with a list of suggested vitamins and supplements. You can say yes to all of them or choose just a few to try first, and then you can add, subtract, or make changes to your subscription at any time. I personally have difficulty finding the time to do even the most basic self-care tasks these days, so I love how easy Care Of makes this process. From the ease of the online quiz to the supplements being delivered right to my door to my favorite part, you guys know this, the individual daily packets with my name and an inspirational quote on them. So there's no sorting, there's no measuring, there's no having to remember which ones to take and what you already took. If you're in a hurry in the morning, cool. Just grab your little care of pack, throw it in your bag, and take the supplements when you have time. For 50% off your first care of order, go to takecareof.com and enter code SODEAD50. Again, that is takecareof.com, promo code SODEAD50 for 50% off your first order. And be sure to tell them I sent you. All right, let's get into it. I suppose the first thing we should do is talk about the building in question, which is going to be super fun because I'm no architect. I'll probably tell you that a few times too. Um, It's had many a name over the past century, this building. It is currently known as Boji Tower, which is a name I don't like at all, and we'll get into why in just a little bit here. The building is, in my opinion, the only real skyscraper in the city of Lansing. Again, I'm not an architect, but when you're cruising 496 toward the heart of downtown, this is the only building that really stands out from the crowd. The rest are just all too short and fat to be considered skyscrapers. The tower has held the title of Lansing's tallest building since it was built in the 1920s. It stands at 297 feet tall. It has 25 stories, 23 above ground and two below ground. And it's located at 124 Allegan Street on the corner of Allegan and Capitol Avenue. It is right across the street from the state capitol building, which it towers over. It is known for its giant Back to the Future style clock at the top, which used to be adorned with neon letters spelling out Michigan National. When I was a kid, the building was known as the Michigan National Building, but the letters and the name are gone now. When it was built, it was called the Olds Tower because it was built by Ransom Eli Olds, creator of the Oldsmobile and the REO Speedwagon, founder of Olds Motor Works and the Rio Motor Car Company, the man who really put Lansing on the map as a powerhouse in the auto industry, the man that Rio Town, where my store is located, is named after. I could go on and on. Anyway, among Ransom's many endeavors was a bank that he founded in Lansing, Capital National Bank. We've all heard the saying, if you build it, they will come. Well, when Ransom built his auto factories, people came from all over to work in them. 
These people needed houses, many of which required financing. And then with all of these new people came a need for more businesses, schools, doctor's offices, all of which also cost money and often required financing. So Olds built his horseless carriages, which created a need for factories to build lots and lots of them, which created a need for people to work in those factories, which created a need for financing options so people could move to Lansing, which created a need for a bank, which Olds opened, which created a need for a place to house that bank. And where better than a stylish Art Deco tower in the heart of downtown, taller than any other building in the city? That's a, that's really kind of like a give a mouse a cookie situation, yeah? Construction on the tower began in November of 1929 and finished in March of 1931, when the building opened to the public at the height of the Great Depression. Depression? Never heard of her. In fact, I'm going to build the tallest building this city has ever seen. That's my Ransom Eli Olds impression. I think I nailed it. What do you... <laughs> so there were all kinds of offices and businesses in the Olds Tower, which was officially christened the Capital National Bank Tower, even though everyone still just called it Olds Tower. Um, but the ground floor and then the very tippy-top floor were reserved for the man himself, Ransom Eli Olds. The ornately decorated lobby was to house his bank, and then the top floor was for his personal offices. Spoiler alert, but Olds died in 1950 at the age of 86, and when he died, the building was sold to Michigan National Bank. Those big neon letters and that clock that I loved so much as a kid were added, and it became known as the Michigan National Building. When Standard Federal Bank bought out Michigan National in 2001, they requested that the letters be removed as Michigan National no longer existed. So, the letters were taken down, but the clock remained. By that point, a real estate development company called the Boji Group owned the building, so they decided to rename it after themselves, hence its current name, Boji Tower. Look, I guess if you drop millions of dollars on a building, you can call it whatever you want. Well, that's not going to stop me from starting a petition to give it back its original name, Olds Tower. That's a joke. I definitely don't have time for that. But I do I do think they had an opportunity there. That building holds so much history. And rather than just name it after, you know, yourself because you bought it, it I, I mean, Olds Tower should have at least been in the running, right? I don't know. Anyway, the lobby of the building, which was a bank for many, many years, is now where the Michigan Senate's hearings are held. Rather than discuss the atrocities that occur within those halls today, I want to talk to you about the horror that unfolded there one winter afternoon in 1932. January 26th, 1932 was a Tuesday. The weather was mild as the Lansing State Journal predicted the possibility of light rain or snow that evening. So it was probably in the mid-30s where it can, you know, go either way. Freezing, not freezing, we don't know. As 3 p.m. approached, the Capitol National Lobby filled with customers trying to squeeze in their last-minute transactions before the bank closed. Banking is a mildly annoying task now. I actually really enjoyed it as a kid. You know, I would go with my mom. We'd go to the drive-thru. I'd get to push the button for the the tube thing, and then I would get my Dum Dum uh, team watermelon and cream soda. I don't so much enjoy it anymore. They don't give out suckers to adults, which I think is rude. 
But uh, in 1932, banking was a downright panic-inducing outing. This was the heyday of Bonnie and Clyde, Babyface Nelson, John Dillinger. Bank robberies were super-duper common, and the vaults that weren't emptied by gangsters often ran dry all on their own. It was not out of the ordinary during the Great Depression for a bank to run out of money. How stressful would that be? I need to go take out $20 to buy, well, shit, $20 in the 1930s. I could have bought a fucking house. But you you hear what I'm saying. Like, I need to go take out money for something. Oh, just kidding. We don't have any money, so you don't have any money. No, thank you. No, thank you. So on this day... January 26th, there were 100 bank employees working as closing time approached and right around 30 customers there to conduct business. Among them was a well-dressed man in his mid-50s, his hand in his pocket. If anyone had looked closely enough, they might have recognized him. He was well-known about town as he came from one of Lansing's founding families. He stood quietly there for a few moments And then he made his way toward the back of the bank, where the bank president's office was located. When he found the office vacant, the man marched back toward the bank entrance and hollered, This town has given me a dirty deal. Where's the big shot? And while people were trying to figure out what the fuck he was talking about, he pulled a thirty-eight caliber revolver from his jacket and began firing. Within a matter of minutes, Blood stained the still glistening black and white tiled marble floors, which weren't even a year old. Bullet holes marked the building's pristine woodwork and ceilings. Bodies lay still on the ground, some afraid to move, some unable to. One man was dead, another soon would be, and several others were gravely wounded. Before we get into what happened, I do want to read to you this absolutely chilling account printed in the Lansing State Journal the day after the shooting. Deathly stillness had settled over the great room. Employees and customers who had taken to cover cowered in their hiding places. It was so still, a pin dropping on the floor would have been heard. The crunch crunch of the gunman's shoes as he shuffled along the tiled floor of the lobby punctuated every second or so by the sharp bark of his revolver alone broke the stillness. Within moments, police cars and ambulances descended upon the scene. Onlookers arrived in droves, crowding the streets. Remember, this is right downtown. This is across the street from the Capitol building. The city of Lansing was in shock, and the beautiful, still brand new Olds Tower was in shambles. And the same question was on everyone's lips. What in the actual fuck just happened. One thing was clear then that has since been lost to the rumor mill over time. This wasn't a bank robbery. It was just straight-up murder. And the only thing more shocking than what happened was who was behind it. Deke Jennings Mead. Deke. His name's Deke, and you guys know how I mispronounce things, and I just, I'm telling you now that I'm going to try to do my best here. But the odds are against me. Deke Mead was born in 1879, the youngest child of Charles and Harriet Mead. The Meads were well known in Lansing. Deke's great grandfather, James Mead, was a pioneer miller and a Civil War veteran who put down roots in Lansing after the war and built what became known as the Mead Block on the southeast corner of the Washington and Ottawa intersection downtown. 
The main attraction of Mead Block was the Star Theater, a popular playhouse in the late 1800s that was run by the Meads. They owned several other businesses, and they rented out retail and office space to other local movers and shakers. Deke attended Lansing High School, which was apparently just, you know, now there's a bunch of them, but I guess there was just Lansing High School in the 1800s, and he graduated in 1899. He attended Michigan State College, which we now just call Michigan State University, for about a year, and he took a course on engineering before dropping out. Deke was a machine guy. He liked to tinker with things. He liked books. Um, He was a pretty smart guy. He never got married or had kids of his own, and he wasn't known to have really any close friends, but he did have associates. He was said to be quick-witted, even-tempered, kind, and funny. Or, as the State Journal put it, he had a keen sense of humor, and his conversation was often tinctured with sly comment, which aroused the risibilities of his audience. Okay. So he worked as an engineer for the Rio Motor Company for several years, for a Michigan railroad company, and for Novo Engineering. It was during his time working on the railroad all the live long day that he suffered a severe head injury. So we all know where this is going to lead already, right? We listen to enough true crime to know what road we're headed down here. Prior to the accident, which happened around 1914 when Deke was 35, he was said to have been a perfect mental and physical specimen. But after the accident, which left him in a hospital bed for several weeks, he began suffering from seizures and exhibiting odd behavior. He was once found running down a street in Lansing, butt-ass naked, uh, and everyone was just like, oh, that Deke, he's not right in the head anymore. Once, and this one's kind of sad, so he uh, was having seizures, right? And one time he went to the barber and asked for help kind of covering up. He had like bruises all over his face and he had some teeth that were broken. And Deke was such a nice guy that it wasn't even on the table that he might have gotten into some sort of fight. It was assumed that he probably had a seizure and he fell and maybe hit his face on the concrete or something like that. And he wanted help hiding it so that his business associates would not know what had happened. Even after the accident, Deke continued to work in engineering, which he did because he enjoyed it. He didn't need the money. He reportedly had a stack of paychecks in his desk drawer that he never bothered to cash. His primary source of income was the family business, renting out what was left of the mead block. It had been passed down and split up between heirs over the years, but Deke still owned enough of the property to make a living. He rented out some of the space and used some of it as storage, and then he kept an office in another part of the building. Deke never had a home of his own, which was kind of weird. He definitely could have afforded one. Instead, he boarded at a house in South Lansing for many years and was said to have looked after his elderly landlady. He lived at the Hotel Roosevelt downtown off and on, and when he decided to move to Detroit in 1930, he moved into the Hotel Grant. In the weeks before the shooting, Deke was spotted around Lansing quite a bit, and several of his acquaintances that he had conversations with recalled him rambling about how unhappy he was with the local bank and with the state of many local businesses, including some in the building that he owned. This was the Great Depression, remember. Everyone was struggling. But Deke Mead, who had no mouths to feed, could afford to live at a hotel and didn't feel the need to cash his paychecks? 
he took it especially personally. When he lived in Lansing, Deke banked with City National Bank, which was one of many banks across the country that literally ran out of money when the Great Depression hit. In swooped your friend and mine, Ransom Eli Olds, who acquired the bank and merged it with his Capital National Bank, which, as we remember, called the Olds Tower home. That meant that debts once held by Citibank became debts held by Capital National Bank, which made Deke Mead an involuntary patron of Capital National Bank. And Capital National didn't dick around with Deke. Sorry, I had to do it. I had to do it at least one time. Um, Or anyone else that defaulted on their loans, which it was the Great Depression. Most people were more worried about, you know, feeding their families and keeping the lights on than making good on old debts. But Deke had money. He had the money to pay his loan. He just chose not to. So the bank contacted him several times and said basically, hey, pay back this fucking loan or we're going to default it and sell your collateral. None of the articles I read clarified what that collateral was that he used to get the loan, whether it was a piece of property or a vehicle or a horse or his best top hat. I really don't know. But whatever it was, When Deke failed to respond to the bank's multiple letters, the bank confiscated the collateral, sold it, settled the debt that Deke owed them, and then there was some money still left over, so they contacted Deke, told him they had a check for him, and he eventually went and picked up the check. Transaction complete, right? Wrong. Deke visited the bank multiple times over the next several weeks for no real reason at all. During one visit, he struck up a conversation with the bank's president, Frank Gorman. He approached Frank like they were old friends, so Frank just kind of went with it. Deke went on and on about how beautiful the lobby was, asking about the construction, things like that. When he finally left, Frank turned to his vice president and was like, who the hell was that? Another time, Deke visited the bank and he struck up a conversation with employees, perfectly pleasant when it started, and then he just kind of snapped for no reason that anyone around him could tell. He started yelling and berating the employee, you know, the bank is a bunch of thieves, the city's corrupt, yada, yada, yada. They actually had to throw him out of the bank that day. This was super out of character behavior for Deke who, again, was still known, even with all of his weird stuff going on, he was still known as a pretty mild-mannered guy. On Tuesday, January 26, 1932, Deke made the drive from his hotel in Detroit to Lansing. He stopped by his old haunt, Hotel Roosevelt, for lunch in the cafeteria around 12.30, and he had a pleasant conversation with his waitress. He then went to the hotel's barbershop about 1 o'clock for a fresh shave, He was friendly with the barber, tipped him, and said, it's good to get away from the old Gillette once in a while. (laughs) He then got in his car and he drove it to the 200 block of Townsend Street downtown, parked it, and then walked to Olds Tower and entered the Capitol National Lobby a little before 3 p.m., just as they were getting ready to close. He walked directly to the office of the bank president, Frank Gorman, but Frank was not there that day. Ironically, he was in Detroit. So Deke left Detroit to come to Lansing to kill Frank, but Frank was in Detroit the whole time. He was actually driving back to Lansing when the shooting happened. So he had no idea what was going on until he actually arrived at the bank in the chaos of the aftermath of the shooting. Since Frank wasn't there, 
Deke decided to turn his wrath on the crowd. His first victim was Albert Elsesser, the 35-year-old vice president of the bank. Al, a World War I veteran, lived on the west side of Lansing at 410 Westmoreland with his wife Olive and their two children, a son and a daughter. He was chatting with a customer and had just pulled out his directory to look up a phone number when Deke Mead fired two shots in his direction. The first tore through his abdomen, piercing both his liver and lung before exiting through his back. The second went through his shoulder. Luckily for Al, a doctor just happened to be walking by, heard someone screaming for help, and rushed into the bank mid-shooting. Even with bullets flying, he rendered aid to the critically wounded bank employee, which is the only reason that Albert Elsesser did not bleed out on the bank floor. Deke's second victim was a customer who'd been standing near Al's desk, 54-year-old John Lilly. Lilly was a production manager for Oldsmobile who'd once played catcher for the Detroit Tigers. He and his wife Elizabeth lived on the west side of Lansing on Osborne Street with their three children, two boys and one girl. John was shot through the neck and was gravely wounded. As Deke made his way through the lobby, firing wildly while terrified customers and employees hid under desks and behind partitions, 43-year-old police officer David Timmons, a World War I veteran, husband, and father who was on shift at the bank, sprung into action. He fired a shot in Deke's direction, and he missed. Deke fired back twice, hitting Timmons in the hand that he held the gun in and in the side just above where his belt was. The shots slowed Timmons down, but they didn't stop him. He fled up the stairs to the bank's balcony to put some distance between him and Deke, as well as to get a better vantage point. So the layout of this bank, and you can still see pictures of it online today. A, it was beautiful. It was beautiful. It's still beautiful. Um, there was a big open room, and then above it, there was a balcony that could kind of look down on the first floor kind of like a, a theater, like an old playhouse. Uh, and then underneath the balcony was where the cages and the vaults and things were. So Timmons runs upstairs to get a better shot, but his gun jammed. So just like in every action movie ever, there's a cop on scene with a gun, but he's frantically trying to unjam his gun as the villain continues to shoot. Deke stopped at one point to reload his gun. Then he shot 29-year-old Berthold, I don't know, it's B-E-R-T-H-O-L-D. I don't know if it's Berthold or Berthold, but they called him Bud, probably because his real name was confusing. Bud Nichols, who was a cashier at Olds Motor Works and was making his office's end-of-day deposit. Bud grew up in Lansing, and he graduated from Central High School in 1921. Two years later, he married his sweetheart, Helen Remus, but she passed away in 1924, just a year into their marriage, at the age of 22. After the loss of his young bride, Bud moved back into his parents' home on Regent Street on Lansing's east side. He'd been with Olds Motor Works for nearly 10 years. Shot through the throat, Bud slumped to the bank floor, mortally wounded. As Officer Timmons struggled to unjam his gun, Deke fired two more shots at a 23-year-old nurse by the name of Lucille Duncan, who was completing her graduate studies at Sparrow Hospital, where she would soon become a patient. The first bullet ripped through her purse, splintered a pencil, and then lodged in her compact without wounding her. 
The second bullet went clear through her companion's hat without harming a hair on his head, then right through Lucille's arm. Again low on bullets and with Officer Timmons closing in, Deke shouted out, I'm running this bank. Then he put the barrel of the revolver in his mouth and pulled the trigger. The bullet came out through his forehead, spraying blood and brain matter everywhere. He was killed instantly. Before we wrap this murder burrito up, I do want to take a moment to shout out a couple of sponsors. Not of the podcast necessarily, although they are both huge supporters of the podcast, but sponsors from last month's Festival of Oddities. Creepy Kawaii is a local small business that I have a long-standing relationship with. Carrying Creepy Kawaii's products, especially their plushies at the Screamatorium, was a no-brainer for me. They are unique, fun, high quality, and so, so soft and snuggly. Every time a new one comes out, I get one for my nephews, sometimes for me as well. And right now, Creepy Kawaii is running a Kickstarter campaign for their best plush yet, in my opinion. Mothman. I got to see the prototype recently and he is so freaking cute. The link to support the Mothman Kickstarter will be in the show notes and on the page for this episode on the So Dead website. But you can also find it by visiting the Creepy Kawaii Facebook page or the website, which is creepykawaii.com. That is spelled C R E E P Y K A W A I I.com. I know that you're going to fall in love with Lock the Mothman like I did, so when you pledge this Kickstarter, not if, when, be sure to put I Love So Dead in the notes to get a special bonus item in your package. That is I Love So Dead. Should roll right off the tongue because I know you guys all say it all the time, right? Uh, Creepy Kawaii has supported So Dead, Dead Time Stories, and a Festival of Oddities just endlessly, so now it's our turn to turn around and support them and get a cute little Mothman in the process. Also, if we're talking about support, Erica Joe Photography is my go-to photographer. Erica has become a very good friend through our work together, which started when she took the gorgeous photos for Haunted Lansing. She's done family photos for us, promo photos for So Dead, uh, two of our kids' senior pictures. Like, when I need photos done, Erica is my person. She does a fabulous job. She's very reasonably priced, and she's just a lot of fun to work with. She does traditional shoots, theme shoots, and is so good at putting together unique shoots that help her subjects show off their individual style. You can look her up on Facebook under Erica Joe Photography, LLC, or on her website at ericajoephotography.com. So, Erica Joe Photography, Creepy Kawaii, I'm a customer, a supporter, a fan, and you should be too. This is a personal recommendation here. I'm not only their fan club president, but I'm also a client. Do you guys remember that? The creepy, no, too obscure, the creepy hair club for men commercials? Okay, never mind. All right, let's get back to today's nightmare. So, in the midst of all of this chaos, the hero of the day was a 19-year-old girl by the name of Frida Converse. Frida worked as a switchboard operator at Capitol National. When Deke Mead entered the bank, Frida was seated at the switchboard in the southern balcony, so she's up top, kind of looking down on the entire lobby, and Deke was standing directly below her when he started shooting. But she didn't run. She didn't hide. She stayed at her post as bullets whizzed by, first from Deke's gun, then from Officer Timmons' gun. 
and she switched the hell out of that board. She called police headquarters, sounded the burglar alarm, rang ambulances and doctors, knowing that at any moment, Deke Mead could look up, see her calling for help, and turn his rage on her. A 19-year-old switchboard operator saved the day, while men twice her age cowered in corners. Once the shooting stopped, police and medical personnel stormed the building. At this point, this was still being treated as a holdup, which meant the gunman probably wasn't working alone. They assumed there was likely a getaway car outside, perhaps accomplices inside the bank now posing as customers, so they had to be really careful with their approach. But they also had to work quickly. 53-year-old Deke Mead was dead. There was no question about that. But there were five other injured bodies lying in pools of blood in the bank lobby. 54-year-old John Lilly and 29-year-old Bud Nichols had both been shot through the neck. 35-year-old Al Elsesser had a bullet tear clean through his torso and was bleeding out. 43-year-old bank officer David Timmons was shot through the hand and had a flesh wound on his side. 23-year-old Lucille Duncan had been shot through the arm. The victims were split up and sent to Sparrow and St. Lawrence hospitals. Officer Timmons let doctors clean his wounds and stitch him up. Then he checked himself out of the hospital and returned to the scene to assist with the investigation. He was back at the bank by 4.15 p.m. The shooting started at 3. Like he, he, was, he was not letting that slow him down. Nurse Lucille's condition was listed as good. Al Elsesser and John Lilly were both listed in critical condition and given 50-50 odds. And 29-year-old widower and Olds Motor Works cashier Bud Nichols died eight hours after a bullet severed the nerves, arteries, and muscles in his throat and neck. When authorities searched Deke Mead's room at Hotel Roosevelt in Detroit, they found a note scribbled on hotel stationery. 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 Sorry. I don't know what just happened there. That read, The bitter fruit of small-town malignancy. I gave you fair warning. Ask the colonel. Notify B.C. Mead, San Antonio, Texas. The colonel referred to was Deke's uncle and best friend, and B.C. Mead was his older brother. The bitter fruit comment left no question that Deke's motive for the mass shooting was revenge on a bank and a city that he thought had slighted him. Whether he thought the bank had given him a raw deal in regards to his forfeit loan and the collateral they repossessed, or was just upset in general about the fact that Capital National seemed to be thriving while its customers were suffering during the Great Depression. It's really unclear what his exact motive is. What is clear, however, is that the people that he hurt, with the exception of one, were not connected in any way to the bank or city politics. They were just regular people trying to survive an economic crisis just like him. Unlike him, they were actually trying to cash their paychecks while his were all still piled up in a fucking drawer. The bank wasn't about to let the massacre get in the way of business, so they were open, business as usual, the very next day, albeit with heightened security. The shooting made headlines for weeks, so I want to read to you just some very, just a few very, very dramatic newspaper excerpts because the newspapers back then were so dramatic, and I love every second of it. These all came from the Lansing State Journal, by the way. Kudos. Top notch. Number one. The pistol of a madman was writing tragedy in the crowded lobby of the bank. Similarly, that's a hard word to say. Another article said that Deke 
wrote tragedy with whizzing bullets, while another said that he turned the lobby of the institution into a no-man's land as he fired right and left before ending his own life with a bullet through his head. All of this press drew the attention of one John Dillinger. You know the guy. And you would think that the fact that there was a mass shooting, heightened security, and national coverage focused on Capital National would dissuade a national syndicate like his from planning a heist. But no, it did not. Dillinger's gang spent weeks planning to rob the infamous and seemingly cursed bank that sat right across the street from the fucking state capitol. Uh, And they referred to this as their million-dollar job. He sent babyface Nelson to Lansing to case the joint, and he did. He, He came here and he scoped out the bank, and Dillinger was also having an armored car built in Chicago specifically to carry out this robbery. But the car was taking too long to build, and the job eventually fell apart. But there was very nearly a sophisticated John Dillinger babyface Nelson heist at the bank the same year as the shooting. Can you even imagine? Which, that's probably where all of the rumors of it being a robbery with mob ties came from, because there was a shooting and there was very nearly a mob robbery, but they were two separate incidences. On February 1st, 1932, nearly a week after the shooting, Lucille Duncan was released from the hospital. I could find absolutely nothing about what became of her after her recovery, Probably in part because her name was not the easiest to search. She went by Lucille, but Lucille was actually her middle name. Her given name was Frances, so some articles referred to her as Frances and some as Lucille. And then if she got married at any point, then her last name wouldn't have been Duncan, right? That would have changed. Um, And so I searched like every name combination that I could think of, but I was not able to find any mentions of Lucille Duncan other than those pertaining to the shooting. Albert Elsesser was in the hospital for nearly three months. He was released in early April of 1932, and he returned to his position at the bank on May 9th, and he lived a long, happy life with children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. He passed away in 1971 at the age of 74. John Lilly's recovery took the longest. The 54-year-old underwent multiple surgeries and blood transfusions. He was still hospitalized as of June 1932, nearly five months after the shooting. He eventually made a full recovery, and he lived to the ripe old age of 90. He passed away in 1968. Officer David Timmons, who didn't even spend an hour in the hospital after being shot twice, went on to become the Lansing Police Department's first motorcycle officer, and he also lived to see 90 years. He died in 1979. Sadly, Frida Converse, the 19-year-old switchboard operator who risked her life to save others, passed away less than a decade after the shooting. She died in 1941 at the age of 29 following a long illness. In 1932, countless innocent citizens saw their lives changed forever at 124 West Allegan Street in downtown Lansing due to the decisions made by a single, out-of-touch, self-righteous man who felt like the world owed him something. In 2022, that same building, that same room, 
serves as a hall where the Michigan Senate holds their hearings. I'll let you make your own jokes and comparisons because it really all writes itself. Uh, At least they replaced the flooring, though. So now the innocent blood staining the floor of Old's Tower is more metaphorical than literal. There are still those bullet holes in the ceiling, though, which you can see if you ever are in the lobby attending a Senate hearing. And that, friends, is the true story, true story of seven strangers, actually six, picked to be gunned down in the Olds Tower. It wasn't a robbery, and it wasn't orchestrated by Al Capone or the Purple Gang. The truth is much simpler and much more terrifying. Thank you for coming to my dead talk. My main source today was literally just old newspaper articles, um, with some assists from Find a Grave and Wikipedia to put dates and times and families together. I do have to give another shout out, though, to Bruce Philip Miller and his book, Once Upon a Time in Lansing. Uh, The mention of the bank shooting in his book is really brief, but without it and without Bruce coming in and talking to me about it, I never would have found this story that I have literally been looking for my whole life. All right, liquid cheese. I want to tell you guys today about an amazing experience that I had a week and a half ago now, about roughly. I mentioned in a previous episode that I was headed down to Obsessed Fest. I was facilitating some signings for the authors at the event, uh, as well as kind of running a pop-up bookshop. Obsessed Fest is a podcast festival. This was the first year. It's hosted by the Obsessed Network, which is True Crime Obsessed, Obsessed with Disappeared. Um, they've got several other podcasts there now, but those are the two big ones, the two the two that started it all. Um, True Crime Obsessed actually is the one that started it all. So Patrick Hines, Jillian Pensavalli, Ellen Marsh, Joey Toronto, um, and they were just so lovely. Everything was so lovely. Everyone was so kind. I was busy as fuck. I was sweating my ass off. But I had so much fun, and I got to meet some pretty important people. Um, Aside from the ones that I just named, Damian Eccles of the West Memphis Three was there. If you're not familiar or don't really have a good recollection of the case, I highly, highly suggest that you watch the documentary West of Memphis. Essentially, back in the early 90s, three little boys were murdered in West Memphis, Arkansas, and three teenage boys that were very gothy were arrested for the murder. They were all convicted. Two of them were sentenced to life. Damien Eccles was actually sentenced to death. So he spent almost 20 years on death row proclaiming his innocence. And eventually the three men were allowed to take an Alford plea, which is essentially, essentially, mm-hmm, okay, essentially, you are pleading guilty while also maintaining your innocence. So when they took the plea, they all literally said, I am innocent. I did not do this, but I am pleading guilty so that you will let me out of prison today. And that's what happened. So uh, after serving 19 years, all three men are free now. They're all off probation too, I believe, but they are still technically convicted murderers. So they're still still a movement to get, you know, DNA tested and evidence looked at so that they can actually be exonerated. And let me just tell you that Damien Eccles was one of the kindest, like so like soft-spoken and gracious and just really, really nice guy, really intelligent. 
Uh, you can just tell by talking to him that the wheels are always turning, but just a really, really nice guy. And his wife, Lori, super, super lovely and kind. So really nice people that some really awful shit happened to. I also got to meet Rabia Chaudhry, which what a time to meet Adnan Syed's fiercest protector, defender, activist, right after he had been released from prison. And then today, as I record this, today the announcement was made that they will not be retrying him. So he is a completely free man. I don't know how like the courty stuff works, so I don't know if that means he's exonerated. I mean, his conviction was vacated, and he's free, and he's about to be a fucking millionaire, hopefully. So, um, yeah, that it just it was amazing. It was an amazing, incredible, very eye-opening experience to get to kind of meet and interact with these people. And I am just really grateful that I got to have that experience. Moral of the story is Obsessed Fest 2023. Like, go. If you don't listen to the True Crime Obsessed podcasts, do it, do it, do it. And um, make your plans once they release the date because it's definitely worth the time and the money to go. Couple quick announcements before I let you go. Uh, one is that True Crime Story Time, my little off week mini episodes, those are over. That's why I didn't get one last week. This is just September, October is my super, super, super busy season, and I am overwhelmed and drowning, which is why this episode is coming to you a couple days late. Uh, I don't have time to do the True Crime Story Times right now, but we may get back to them next season. The next episode coming in two weeks is our annual Halloween special. So if you've got a good ghost story, send it in now. You can send it to the So Dead Facebook page or you can email me, sodeadpodcast at gmail.com. If you want your story to be anonymous, just put that in your message and no names will be mentioned. Uh, Make sure you're following on all the socials, pretty active on the Facebook and (laughs) I said the Facebook Pretty, I'm pretty active on the Facebook. Pretty active on Facebook and in the So Dead discussion group on Facebook. Um, I post here and there-ish on Insta. TikTok still the main thing. I did change my TikTok handle, though. It is now the Jen Carpenter. Or if you just search Jen Carpenter, you'll probably find me. Um, yeah, so I'll see you guys in a couple of weeks. Till then, keep shining, you magnificent what-the-fucks. 